What's up, Daw Nation? My name is Wyatt Troy, and I want to welcome you to episode 43.5 of Behind the Daw, where we usually interview music producers, artists, music industry experts, and people of that nature on an emotional, philosophical, and artistic basis. But as you notice, this is a 0.5 episode, which means we take the audio from our YouTube series, In the Daw, where we invite producers to come and dissect their songs in real time, and we put it in a podcast form so that you can partake of it on the go and get that perfect combination of emotional and technical knowledge. But it it is important to note that if you would rather watch these type of interviews, go ahead and go to Multiplier's YouTube channel, link in the description. If you would rather listen to it, well then keep listening. A couple of things before we get started with this episode, and before I introduce the guests, uh, there are a couple other links down in the description that I want you to know about. First off is the Patreon. If you want to make sure that we can keep bringing you these episodes forever for free, please check out the Patreon. And plus, if you sign up for the $5 a month tier, you not only get access to a private Discord community, but in that private Discord community, we live stream all of the interviews that we do. And you can ask your own questions. And every week we pick a lucky winner from our patrons to come on the show with us and to meet the artists that we interview. So go ahead, check that out if you're interested in that. The second link in the description is for artist suggestions. If you want to suggest someone to come on the show, by all means, there's a link for that. The third link in the description is for private lessons. If you want private lessons in electronic music production or in social media marketing, Go ahead, check out that link. The fourth link is to enter to win a free 20-minute social media marketing consultation. We give out one every week. If you win, I will notify you. So please go ahead and check that out. And then the fifth link in the description is a little gift from Culprit and us to you. So if you want to find out what that is, maybe it's a sample, maybe it's a preset, who knows? You got to go check it out. Go ahead and check that out. Link in the description. And also there's a bunch of other links for things that we're going to be talking about in this episode. Things like plugins, things like other songs that we talk about, so on and so forth. So make sure to check out all those links if you are interested. So with all that out of the way, who are we interviewing today? Today, we got Culprit. He's going to be breaking down his song, Subsonics, that he just barely put out on his new album. So what are you going to be learning today? Today, you're going to be learning about sound design through resampling. Uh, You're going to be learning about constructing phrases with a sampler, mixing through monitors versus mixing through headphones, when to use saturation, the best contact library for impacts, risers, and Atmos, and how to swing your drums and why you should swing your drums. So if you like this episode, please like, comment, subscribe, repost, follow, whatever is appropriate on the particular platform that you're listening on, like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Deezer, SoundCloud, YouTube, wherever you're at, doesn't matter. It just helps us know that what we're doing is moving in the direction that you need us to, Donation. So with all that out of the way, please let me introduce you to Culprit. either the bass channel or the, or the reef so are they layers or kind of look, looks like they're layers but yeah well they're, they're just uh, different generations of uh, the same thing essentially um, the one that's labeled new is the one that I actually stemmed out to, to mix and whatnot the one underneath that is its predecessor underneath that is its predecessor and so on like this, this audio file is basically the oldest thing that I've got because I think I was quite destructive and just flattened it and uh, didn't keep the, the MIDI, unfortunately. This one is like a mock-up of how I would have made that sound, just in case you wanted me to explain it. But yeah, they're not they're not layers, they're just there for explanation's sake, essentially. Awesome, perfect. And is that generally how you work, preferring to, say, process one thing over and over again versus layering together one? It depends. For this kind of track, uh, like a, a D&B thing where it needs to be 
big and loud and everything, yeah, I'll resample and resample because it's really, I find it really difficult to, to get stuff clean enough in MIDI at that volume, basically. So, yeah, it just helps if I bounce it and then I can chop bits off and it's perfectly chopped, it's gone, there's no like automation involved or anything like that. So, for this, I, I prefer to work this way, but for deliverance type stuff, like I just leave it until I need to bounce it all down to mix. For this, I do it this way. Some days, whether now or later, it'd be good to see how you made it. We'll see that now. Yeah, how did you make it? I'd love to see that. The bass sound, it's essentially, I don't know if you know the tune, but I'll play it. That bass sound is essentially what I'm going to explain. Going back over it, the generation before that, it's quite different, but kind of the same. Going back again, There's a definite difference there, but um, yeah, and the only the, the only thing that I did really, another group and another file makes it look like so much work than it actually is. I just literally put a, uh, a Pro MB on it and as an expander, only had it coming in when it was triggered by a, a side chain essentially. So I went from a really white, noisy sort of wide, flabby mess essentially to something that's a lot tighter and more defined in the high end that had a shape. It didn't really need another project file for that, <laughs> to be honest, but you know, I just felt it was cleaner to do it that way. So the initial noise that I made all of that bass out of is this. So it's just like a one note Reese, which is essentially just two saws and some white noise, which is distorted quite a lot. Yeah, this is the one here. So I then put that in a sampler and... Just looped a certain section of it. it. It's I just played around with the start point until I found something that sounded like a nice groove. Essentially, if I move it, it sounds completely different. I just I toyed around with different positions until I, like I said, got something that I I liked, and then I layered it with a sub essentially because the sub on that was a bit flabby, basically. Just a, a normal sub. The way that I work most of the time is just I would get basis for my sound like that, basically, and then just start adding harmonics, and then that's also got... Yeah, okay, so a, a low-pass version of this the, the original sound, essentially. And then that has another set of harmonics laid on top of that again. So, yeah, together... Change now, but yeah, you get what I mean. It's just adding what I think is missing rather than tweaking a preset. So I've got the sound that I wanted now that it's just time to sort of thicken that out sine waves essentially. That's essentially how I work all is the that, time. Is that usually your, your sound design process is that you, you create the sound somehow, some way you flatten it and then you throw it into a sampler in order to sequence it in the arrangement? Is that usually your workflow? 50 50, really. Um, I often do like to like just make the sounds in a synth and keep them there as long as possible. But then when the synth isn't doing what I want it to do, then bounce. Obviously this, I, I was just I was just messing around at first. I wasn't even meaning to make a tune and I, just, I found something that sounded cool and just went from there. But the thing that I do all the time is the just layering harmonics around the sides and stuff. Whether that's from a resampled, over a resampled bit, or just straight out of the synth. The thing that I would do this for every single time is the, the fills at the end of bars, which are like really mental sounding. Generally use this technique for those pretty, pretty much every time, just because you get more interesting sounds and they, they aren't always 
as predictable as a synth. So you can get some pretty obscure things without having to do much stuff. When layering that subwave sine wave thing back in, did you have to worry about that phasing with the original sub or was there not much in the original? Um, you, if you didn't want it to phase with the original sub, then yeah, you'd have to worry about that. I wanted that movement. So I just left it in there. Obviously, I didn't actually leave the, the stereo in the sub in the final. I got rid of that, but the movement remained. So like that, that that's why I did that, to get the movement. But um, yeah, if you didn't want it to, to phase and like move around, then yeah, you would have to worry about that, definitely. And that's where moving the harmonics up the series would, would eliminate that completely. So yeah, that's, that's why I generally go for third, sometimes fifth and tenth. Uh, and sometimes second. I'll rarely just layer another fundamental on top of fun a fundamental because, yeah, you will just get major, major phasing issues, which probably won't be very good. Yeah, I, I suppose that's one thing oftentimes people forget is that, yeah, so sometimes that like phasing is actually de desirable. I mean, yeah, I even forget about that sometimes myself. Yeah, it's yeah, no, to totally. I, for this tune, well, it wasn't the original idea, but when I actually had the, the basic vibe of the tune, I was like, oh, this sounds like, I don't know, late 90s D&B sort of thing. That's the sort of vibe I wanted to, to go for, and that was the method that they would have used, basically. So I thought it was authentic. Your drums, I really want to know about your drums. So the syncopation and the groove that you get with your drums is incredible. How do you how do, you do that? How does, how does the culprit do that? Because I have no idea what I'm doing with this. <laughs> basically, I'm not, I, I, I know the bare minimum of music theory, and that's all melodic. That's not, none of that's really rhythm. I know what an eighth note and sixteenth note is, but that's where it stops, essentially. All of the sort of the weird rhythms in my tune, tunes are just, they're just done by ear. Like, there's no, there's no technical process behind it. It's just like, does that sound good? Move it. Laborious and, like, probably really tedious to watch. Like, that's how I get the results, essentially. Just spending hours just guessing. Spend a lot of time just, like, slightly moving stuff around. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Move it left, move it right. And in a file like this, you can imagine that gets, like, really, 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 really long, basically. So... I've shuffled quite a lot, that, but that's something that a lot of people do. Obviously, in this tune, I haven't shuffled at all because it's it's one seven two, and that shuffle starts to sound a bit a bit messy. For those who don't know what shuffling means, what what does shuffling mean in this context? To shuffle a, a groove, you you would basically be taking the bits in between the main quarter notes or the main eighth notes and just moving them slightly left. Well, no, slightly right, sorry. But you can move them slightly left as well. But that's essentially what a shuffle is. You're just shifting the timing of, of 16th notes in between the 8th notes. Probably explained that really badly, but again, I know nothing about rhythm. I just guess. So another another term that we use is swing. So it's, it's you going in and putting swing to it. Yes, shuffle, swing, kind of the same concept. So walk me through when you when you program your jumps. You just like start with your kick and make sure that's tight on the grid and then add the other elements in and shuffle them? Or what's what's the process? If I do choose to, to put a swing or a shuffle like on my tune, it will be on everything. It won't just be on the hats. I'll have to almost decide before, but like sometimes I decide afterwards and have to go back and just reshuffle everything. I, I will shuffle literally everything, even the bass, like the, the lead sounds, everything will, will follow the same grid. I like to, to, to mix very mono heavy. And if you've got different rhythms, different grooves, different shuffle times going, or different swing times going over each other. In mono, it sounds really messy. It just sort of puts me off of doing that, so I just, I swing everything if I choose to do that. That actually makes it a bit easier for me, because like, I just need to reference something else, and it's like, oh, right, that needs to go over there, or whatever, you know? So that takes a little bit of the guesswork out, but it's still 99% <laughs> guessing. And is that you, like literally manually lining up the audio, like, I mean, I personally do, or is that using the groove pool? In no, I don't really use the groove pool because it, it means that you're 
kind of stretching the audio into that that group essentially i mean it's okay for percussive loops that are quite tight sounding anyway like they don't have tails to bleed over the next transient but if if you have like uh, i don't know an old break or something it just makes it sound really choppy so i, I rarely do that i just i do it manually but yeah also i, I, I just like doing it manually as well because i just know where i am with it it is what it is you know so there's no there's no guessing but yeah i generally when i, I start i will start with the kick and snare try and get everything sounding good without hats completely without hats because then you d you don't need to go overboard with the hats because i find that sometimes i listen to tunes and the hats are actually making up the a lack of dynamics and groove within the tune itself they're just like a big wash so that's something that i like to well i try to avoid where possible but so sometimes it can be used to creative advantages but i rarely do that so yeah i, try, I just try and get the the groove solid with just the kick and snare and also, yeah, use the, the basses as percussion and stuff like that. So, and the hi-hats are almost an afterthought, in honesty, <laughs> for me. And generally, they'll just be super, super, super basic ones, almost characterless, so that I can really drive them. And they just, yeah, that brings out a certain character. That's how I'd go about it. And I'm assuming this is going to change from song to song, but do you usually, the very start of the project, you start with the drums and then move to the sound design or sound design drums, or does it just depend? Uh, yeah, like I said, it depends. For this type of thing, I would probably start with some sort of beat, yeah, like a kick and snare, just so I, I have a frame of reference to put uh, bass around. Then I'd go on to the bass, obviously. The beginning of my tunes is literally just an interaction between the drums and the bass, and then ev everything else just gets added on afterwards. And like risers and effects and stuff are like literally the last 1% of everything I do. Like, yeah, most of the, tr the, the versions won't have anything like that in it. It'll just be bass and drums and maybe pad or something or lead. Curious what the difference between mixed bus and stuff bus is. Okay, so the, the mix bus down here is literally, it's just a bus that I send literally everything to before the master, just so that I can I can put on like a compressor and stuff like that. It's all uh, bypassed because I don't keep it on there when I export it, but it's just to hear what it might sound like when it's mastered, because things do change a little bit. It's not really necessary, but it's just a, a reference, another frame of reference that I like to use, basically. Um, and the stuff bus is everything that isn't drums or bass, so like synths vocals and atmos well okay atmos is going to mix bus but yeah you know what i mean uh, everything that isn't drums and bass essentially goes to that bus and then maybe would have a global side chain on it this time it doesn't it's just a saturator just to give it a bit extra like, presence or maybe just flatten it off because I, I use this saturator as a limiter a lot of the time but yeah that, that's the difference I usually have a lot more buses, but um, this is a really, really old, old project. Yes, from 2015. I have seen a lot of the saturator on, on a lot of your different chains down here. So you, you are just using it basically as like a, like a soft clip limiter kind of thing? Yeah, no, essentially, yeah. I put on everything, actually, <laughs> to be fair. You can push it quite far without it sounding rubbish. This is quite a good one. And it does actually limit. Yeah, it doesn't let anything go over the, the output, which is nice. If I was to whack a limiter on there, it would sound limited. Like it's like, the, yeah, the transients just come through really nicely with this. I, I'll never use it to sort of boost level per se. Like I always take out what I put in. So it's literally there to flatten stuff off without limiting. And if I don't want to compress, if it sounds too compressed, I'll, be, I'll use a saturator, which is often the case. But yeah, I put it on everything. I think it's necessary, especially everything inside the, yeah, in Ableton, it's, it's sterile essentially, you know what I mean? It has no character whatsoever. So they need like a bit of grit. I think that's what people like about analog stuff. It's a bit gritty, so add that little bit in. 
can't have, have you found any other digital vst style saturators that you like or is this one take the cake this one is my favorite because it is so effective it's nothing special it doesn't sound like wow that's like tube or you know what i mean it doesn't sound like really analog or anything like that but it's a low cpu hit i can put it on every single channel and like i could put five of them on every single channel if i wanted to it wouldn't make a dent so yeah i did i mainly use it because of that really and i know where i am it's really simple it's just two controls i only use two controls essentially i don't really use a dc because well i do sometimes but rarely and yeah i never use a soft clip either because it just all that's doing is essentially adding another one on the on the end of it it's just easy uh, i mean i used to use um the Ant- antares it's really really old they have one called warm and that thing is amazing yeah uh, mate they're, they're, there are a lot out there like satin's good as well and saturn I, I do use satin sometimes this thing is incredible it really is but you can't really push it as far as the ableton one which um I, i'd use this one for character and i'd use like the ableton one for leveling essentially uh but yeah this is from like 2002 or something stupid like that it's really old it's like the first vst i ever got again it's simple and effective like you've got two settings heavy and light you know and the omnitube i think uh, i don't i can't even remember what that does it's amazing <laughs> it's about, i've never found another saturator that, that sounds quite as good it's that basically but you do feel like the ableton one you can push farther yeah easily easily it's like you don't it's more transparent basically your drums do sound very it's very pleasing they're not not too harsh they're not too compressed they're not too anything like that is that a result of you using a lot of the, the saturator or how do you how do you process your drums can't go back on the drums practically on this file because i've only got these but generally i compress a lot but not to bring out transients per se like i do that as well but i would do that in parallel like i, I just like to over compress the kick so like r- ridiculous settings so like no attack no release maximum ratio just slab use that but then bring it like resample that maybe and then um, do like multi-band gating on it so like because you've really overcompressed it, you've brought out all this hiss in the tail. So, like, I'd gate that down in the top. And I use a volume shaper by uh, Cable Guys. Cable Guys. Cable Guys. Yeah, yeah. It's really good, man. I'm still, I'm still on version four, but still, it still works. But yeah, I'd use that to, to just tidy up the top end. So, all you get is the attack. I actually, yeah, I, I use the volume shaper again. I roll in the highs. So, anything above 1K actually gets rolled into yeah it ta- gets taken off of the transient but gets allowed on like the body and then gets taken out again for the tail so all the high end in the kick will be in the body not the transient and the transient will just be like pure like uh i don't know five to eight hundred hertz it would just be like knock instead of hiss and click so i, re- I really hate clicky drums so i tried to take as much of that out as possible without it sounding like muffled but yeah then i'd resample that again and um, just be left with a kick essentially but yeah the snare is a similar process i wouldn't compress it as much because it it doesn't generally need it but yeah i, I would use a very very similar process but i wouldn't roll off the highs i would uh, roll off the lows keep the snap on the snare i wouldn't roll off the snap um, but that's that's essentially what i do most of the time yeah just really like destroy the sound and then 
tidy up with gates. Well, what is the, the Sheps? Is that how you say it? The Sheps 73? It's a 1073 EMU preamp, essentially, an EQ. So I use it to drive the sound a little bit. It's, it's really, 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 really subtle. Really brings out transients. It doesn't make them louder. It just makes them more audible in the mix. It's really weird. I don't know how it, how it does it, but I've got this exactly the same preamp in hardware and it sounds pretty much the same. I can't, yeah, I wouldn't be able to distinguish between them, basically. So yeah. That, that's one of one of the things that I put on a lot of, of different channels um, because who doesn't like the Neve sound? Really, <laughs> to be honest, that is definitely something that I use quite often nowadays. And again, that's that that's really the only plugins that I I generally buy. I mean, I buy sort of tools like the the volume shaper, things that sort of emulate things, things for character essentially. That's what I buy because the Ableton stuff is more than adequate, you know, for for every task essentially. And if they're not the fab filter stuff is so uh, I wave stuff anyway for character. You also mentioned volume shaper. So do you use that for sidechain compression or do you do it more manually? Sometimes for this tune I did, just because I needed it to be like really dramatic. I needed it to be gated out essentially, not just dipped. Now, that's when that's when I'd use it essentially, when I needed it to be fully gated out. So is it and I use a sidechain on top because if you go down right away, just like a line going down in volume shaper, it makes a click. Yeah, so you have to sort of give it a few milliseconds just to roll it off instead. So you never fully get a side chain on the on the transient. So I like to put an actual compressor afterwards, and um, yeah, twenty milliseconds just take take that tiny little bit out, so you, the transient has full room to breathe, and like it will be the same every time. Then it won't change depending on what bass it's over, sort of thing. So, uh, but yeah, the volume shape is great for that. I, I I used to use it in multiband while side chaining. It sounds weird, man. It sounds weird to me when the bass is gone and all the tops are still there. It's just like, whoa, it feels like my ears have stopped working properly for a minute. So, yeah, I tend not to do that with it. The little, like, downsampled vocal thing you got going on. What is that guy? Ah, that is uh, another really obvious test. It's a speaking spell VST. Yeah, yeah, it's just literally a speaking spell that I've, I've bounced out, basically. And what? Did, I've never heard of that before. What is that? All right, okay. I'll, I'll try, and, try and open it, see if the project will allow it. No, I don't have it anymore because uh, I obviously thought it was stupid <laughs> or something. But yeah, no, you know the, the old toys, the speak and spell toys, it's essentially an emulation of that. Like you can just type in anything and it just reads it out in that silly voice. The isotope vocal synth has the same algorithms, but you'd have to have, have the words kind of spoken yourself or... Yeah, yeah. Like, I, to be fair, I did actually contemplate just saying the words in and vocoding it with bass, but then like, yeah, I, I decided against it because it would have just been a linear stream of bass and I like to break it up a little bit. Some days I regret it still, but some days I'm like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Do you do your own mixing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's something that, that's the one thing I love about it. Because the, the creation itself, I'm not really a musician. So, I mean, I struggle with that. It's actually really hard and challenging, but the mix is where like I can actually really enjoy. I'm like the opposite to a lot of people in that respect. Like, a lot of people hate the mix, but I, I love it. Man. I can sit there and listen just listen to it and like just tweak things and like just be like oh that's not perfect just make that perfect thing <laughs> I don't know. And, you, and, and i'm assuming you do it in the room that you're in right now right yeah it's terrible the, the room is absolutely shocking um even with all of these boards around me like it's, it's shocking like my desk gives out like 150 hertz resonance and like it's just it's impossible basically but 
I mean, I know it now. I can work with it. So you do mix through monitors. You don't mix through your headphones? Uh, sometimes, yeah. Um, well, I'd, actually, to be fair, that, that's a total lie. I mix a lot on my headphones. I don't trust them for transients because these headphones, I don't know about other headphones, but these headphones are rubbish at transients. I, I, I will get it sounding good on them, and then I'll, I'll take the headphones off, put the monitors on, and it'll just be like... Bam, bam. It's like, whoa, what the, what? How did I miss that? That's just horrible. And there's other things as well I don't trust headphones for, like uh, space. I don't trust headphones for space because 180 degrees separation, it's just, you know, you can't tell anything from that. It's just left and right. You, know, you can't place anything. Um, so, yeah, if I want to actually, and for depth as well, I, I trust the monitors more for depth. Even with this room, headphones don't have any depth, essentially. In this, I don't know, all of these probably do, but I don't know. I mainly mix on my headphones and just use the monitors for reference because of my room. I know for a fact that if I did mix on, on here, there would be all sorts of problems, basically. I just It would take so much longer as well. And I can't have it up loud because I live... Someone lives above me and someone lives below me and we've got a kid in the house and it's just like... Plus, I've got the sub pack now, so I don't really, I don't need to feel it from the speakers anymore. But yeah, like I said, for transients and space, I need the monitors, even even in this room. Headphones just don't do it. Question with the sub pack, because I've heard a lot of people that are, they're, they're kind of going that way. You know, they're in the situation that you are, you know, they have neighbors or kids or whatever and they can't blast the bass. So do you use the sub pack and you kind of know how hard the sub pack is supposed to hit relative to other things and that's kind of how you use it for your to know if your bass is okay i don't use it necessarily to check the level of my sub bass because you should be able to hear that you know it should have enough presence and affect the rest of the tune in such a way that you know there's enough sub bass in there but i, I use it to check like rumble like really low like 20 hertz rumble and stuff like that that i can't hear at all that would just go unnoticed and then at mastering stage you need to be rolled off and i'd lose bass so yeah I, I i check i check that on it basically rather than the level of my bass often it will be the relationship between the low end of the kick and the sub so it's not necessarily to, to gauge how loud it is but relationships within the tune so i don't need to like reference another tune or anything like that just, um, i'm comfortable with the levels coming from the headphones back to me so how long would the entire process for mixing take roughly we're talking like four hours or i do i mix for other people and like generally if the tune's good yeah about four hours if it's in a really bad state about 13 hours but my tunes i'll, I'll write the tune in about two days but then about maybe eight nine months to a year i'll spend just tweaking because that's the part that i love like i said um i can just i could do it forever on tunes basically but um realistically it should only take about four hours but i just i long it out so what would define something that'd be good that would only take a couple hours as opposed to something that'd be bad that would take forever a good example that would take four hours like two to four hours would be like a dance track that has relatively good levels like to the untrained ear it doesn't need a mix down that's what i mean by that but to the trained ear like yeah it does and like after the mix down it's so much better so yeah i mean that's the that's the point at where it would wouldn't take very long because it would just be like tiny bits and pieces here and there there would be no like like intense editing and like copying a, a section but worst case scenario yeah you're doing a lot of that sort of replacing like drums because they're just so weak and like but replacing them in such a way where you only like reinforce them and you have to keep the tonal character and the timbre of of the sound itself because that's what they wanted so yeah that's when it takes ages because you get all sorts of 
like I don't know, phase problems that you need to sort out and yeah it's, it, that's the long bit and also poorly recorded vocals that's what takes the longest they they want a certain result but the source material is like whack essentially you know so you've got to do so much to clean it up and it just takes ages and often that sort of thing you'll need to do it and then wait a day come back on fresh ears and check it again because it's just so, so labor intensive that you just after often the, the ninth hour you just haven't got a clue where you are so but yeah they're, they're the two examples of what that would be essentially so how do you generally think about stereo imaging do you try, try to keep it mostly mono or do you ever, ever, ever play with the stereo side of things i try and keep all of my main sounds in mono but obviously have them have stereo parts so like if you drop it into mono all of a sudden the sound won't actually change it will just become narrow everyone's guilty of this i'm guilty of this as well whereas like oh that'll do that'll be fine no one will play it in mono anyway but yeah I, when you collapse a tune into mono and all you can hear is sub bass and the kick and snare that's all you can hear and it's like really really bugs me so yeah i try and like have it all really clear in mono and have top end and body and everything and clarity and detail that's the that's the main thing because um that's why i don't use a lot of reverb as well because i find that it just it messes with the mono signal i just don't i don't like the way it does it i just i try and i try and get everything mono essentially if i play this in mono it will probably sound pretty similar if not exactly the same so i'd use this and just you know just always have that on the master just so i can reference it in mono or or just the size if i need to so so that doesn't really sound any different you know what i mean like if i just played it like in stereo So you're not missing anything like that's what i aim for essentially i don't want anything to disappear in mono so yeah i will start all of my sounds completely mono and then like i was saying earlier i'll add harmonics around the sides and maybe white noise on the top just to bring brightness at the sides but yeah the, the main source sound will be completely mono and i think that's the way that a lot of people um that make that heavy sort of resampling based music that's how that's how they work i think to my knowledge anyway it's all about mono especially because you know you get it on a system and it could actually just be mono and then you get there and it's like all you can hear is sub bass and drums so yeah i just didn't want that because i've experienced that before a clap has is, is just completely disappeared and i'm like what, what's going on here and, like, and, and the rest of the crowd can hear it but in the monitors it's mono so i can't hear it so it's really confusing so yeah i didn't want that so that's why i do that just a weird ocd thing but yeah it, it gets a more solid sound it's like the, your main elements are totally mono just with the peripherals being stereo it actually makes the stuff that is stereo seem wider as well because everything's like within the tune. It's, you've got to reference it to the, the elements that are in the tune. So if everything is wide, nothing will seem wide. It will just seem really phasey. So, yeah, you've got to have some elements that are in mono to make it all sound wider. When you want to make a track that you, you definitely want to work live, like is the main purpose of the track. So what's like the main thing you think of that you need to kind of consider almost? Is it the, the loudness or the way things are balanced or...? loudness is a big part of it that will be how i yeah go about the whole tune in fact yeah how loud i want it to end up if it's for live i will smash everything but then i'll gate it off so that it sounds clean but it will be really 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 smashed and saturated so that it's loud but yeah if it's like a deliverancy type thing i won't do that at all i'll be really really gentle with all that just because it doesn't need to compete with any other tunes you know a lot of tunes are really loud <laughs> these days so 
it's yeah, they've got they've got to stand up essentially. Otherwise, it just it's a big anticlimax when they're mixed in, you know. So, what is your your process, your strategy behind like the call and response between like the bass and and the other elements of the song? Not necessarily drums, because you showed us like how to do your drums, but like after you get your drums done, how do you go about doing like call and response and sequencing with the bass and other elements of the song? Because I found I find you know like with students, that's 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 a question they ask a lot. Is like how do you how do you do call and response? How do you properly do that? Probably going to really oversimplify this, but like think of it as a conversation between two people. Someone says something and then there is an appropriate response to that. Uh, it doesn't have to be, uh, I don't know, t totally in key or melodic or anything like that. But you know, I think the best example of call and response is Square Feet by Noisier. I don't know if you've heard that. It's really old. It was off like Split the Atom or something like that. But um, yeah, mate, that tune is like one of their first halftime tunes as well, I think. And like, it sounds like two bass lines having a conversation. Literally, it's not like a banger or anything like that. It's like just fat. And yeah, it's just a conversation between two two basses. I mean, without going, well, 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 like, I, I don't know. Really. It's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to actually explain simply. One easy way of looking at it would be, from a sound design perspective so you start your phrase with a reese and that's like everyone knows what that is you just have a single note or like two notes nah, nah, and then your response to that would be percussive basses you know just a, a juxtaposition almost but yeah in terms of melodically like it's really difficult to say because i've got the, the bare minimum <laughs> theory knowledge but yeah the, the sound design thing the sound design method is the, the easiest way to achieve that uh, that, and that, that's the way that I do it most of the time, actually. Like, if the Reese is first, percussive bass second, vice versa sort of thing. That's mainly what you'll hear in my tunes, actually. There'll be, like, long notes and then percussive notes. Like I said, probably oversimplifying that quite horrendously, but difficult one to answer without the right oh, good, man. What was the most difficult part of this track? It was the top end, I think. Just getting the, the top end mixed right. Because I, I work mainly without cymbals right away, it means that I can go a bit overboard with the top end in the bass. Once it's printed, <laughs> it, it's printed. So I bounced a load of white noise in with my, my bass to begin with, uh, which is I kind of, kind of regret a little bit now because... Yeah, a little bit of control's nice, but yeah, I, I, I went backwards and forwards between boosting frequencies, cutting them, boosting them, cutting them, and this went on for weeks, man. I, it was ridiculous. So yeah, at the end of it, I just ended up actually uh, turning the hats down. <laughs> it's something I could have done at the beginning. So yeah, uh, that, that, was, that was difficult just because I was being a spaz, not because it is actually difficult, but just because I was being an idiot. But yeah, other than that, like the Atmos, I really, really struggled to like find sounds that sort of brought the whole tune together without being intrusive. Yeah, I can't even remember where I got these from now. I think it, I, I, yeah, it was when I bought Omnisphere, just like playing around with the granular thing in that. Accidentally, it just like came across all, all this stuff with... Uh So yeah, I wouldn't have thought of like adding anything like that. I don't know. There was a baseline just granulized essentially with a bit of reverb on it. But yeah, that took me ages to figure out what to put in there. And like that that's my main struggle with making tunes, actually putting things in them. Like it's just I, yeah, I, I I do I do struggle. I find it hard. But I think that's that's maybe the appeal too. You know, it's a challenge, like properly a challenge. Every aspect of it was quite difficult to be even more vague. You know, within let's say the last year, the last couple of months, what has been 
one of your favorite sound design techniques that you've came across that you're like, yeah, this is this is really cool. Man, like yeah, all of my my techniques are mega old. One one thing that uh, has actually caught my attention recently because I'm up like after this EP was released, I started working on a, another album, basically like a, another deliverancey type thing. I was struggling with tape emus, basically. I've got the slate one, and it sounds nice. It doesn't like basically my problem with with tape emus is that the wow and flutter on there is never any good and it never actually sounds like a tape machine it's just an oscillator going up and down which is not what it is it's like a line that sort of goes like that it's like noise almost introduced into a sine wave it's it's really complex and evolving so what i've started doing is um putting uh, just a simple delay on a track i'll I'll do it here like a simple delay i'll put it on the atmos because it'll probably work best on there it might be intrusive so okay and i'll group it it doesn't take too long and so i'll put one of these on every single channel but i will put it on on time so it's in milliseconds now and maybe put it to like somewhere down there and then link it to a macro but then this is where like they all differ like each track will have their own settings so like one track will have like three milliseconds and i don't know 12 milliseconds and that will be the buffer between three and 12 milliseconds delay I could make it even more extreme just to actually demo it. And then I'll go through it, like have it somewhere in the middle, because like it's nice to have sounds offset, especially if you want them to sound real, um, which is what I wanted for this other project. It actually makes it sound like they're being played by different people instead of just robotically on a like quantized grid. So yeah, then I would go in and just like just draw tiny bits of automation. And then But yeah, it just makes it like pitch up and down, and um, I can do it even more dramatically. So you can actually hear. And is that with the the repitch mode turned on for simple delays? That right? That's right. Yeah, that's a crucial factor. Thank you for <laughs> for pointing that out. So yeah, you can hear it sort of like wobble and stuff. Like yeah, so that's that's the way that I do my wow and flutter, and then I'll put a tape emu after that with no wow and flutter just for the the tube effect or the tape effect you know so that that's one thing that i've learned recently that i have to do because it could because it's just an oscillator it, it's yeah it's it's nothing it's tape heads don't behave like that so they, they behave more like this like randomly so like so you have, have, you, have you seen the new i think it's they brought it out in live 10 unless you had max for live um but you could get the new lfo device um and and, and that's got some pretty even turn, turn up the jitter i think it is and stuff you can pretty much get that delay time moving around auto- automatically and that sort of way yeah yeah i did try that actually that's that was a, that was the first thing i tried and um i found that it would make really cool results but not where i wanted them do you know what i mean i want the, the i want the sounds to pitch into each other and like walk around each other not just be like up and down you know but yeah that that's the first thing i tried essentially but i do this so that they sort of and i'll automate like uh yeah like peaks and troughs where i want the pitching to happen essentially and that's that's why i do it this way otherwise yeah that's that's perfectly perfectly valid for precision i just i just do it this way oh, that's, that's that's something that i only just uh, discovered the other day actually so i guess that's a new thing but a very 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 simple thing but like really really uh, effective actually when it's when it's not on this sound apparently <laughs> but yeah like if you've got uh i don't know contact libraries it's really good on them 
Really good. Could you give two or three examples of lessons you have learned since achieving your level of success in the music industry? I've learned that it's not as scary as people think. It's a lot more work than people think, but that's not necessarily scary, you know? So yeah, when people say you, you might want to get a real job, it's like, I work twice as much as you. <laughs> it's a lot of work. And that's one thing that I've learned since actually developing a name for myself. I just underestimated that grossly. I just thought, yeah, it'd be fun. But actually, you know, it's, <laughs> it's very time consuming. So I, I just also discovered that I had to give up socializing <laughs> as well. Another thing that I, I, I learned is that it is imperative to have a few really good, trustworthy people around you. I think that is the most important thing, be that a manager or an agent or whatever. I mean, at first, obviously, that's not important. And um, but I, seriously, that's one of the major lessons that I've learned. I wouldn't have a career without my manager. That's that's the truth. Like, because I mean, I can do what I do, but then I'm the sort of person that no one would ever hear this stuff. You know, I wouldn't post about it or anything. I just don't. I don't do that really. That that was a big realization that man. Like, I need. I need this group of people. So yeah, finding finding a, a small group of people that are trustworthy and that's probably the most important thing you can do for your career. Actually, everything else is kind of superseded by that. I reckon. Would you like our feedback on your song? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Song super dope. Love the basses. Love the sequencing. Love the the syncopated drums and all that kind of stuff. Just like the culprit feel to it, right? I absolutely love that. I love what was going on. I have a bit of feedback for your Atmos though, because you said that was something that you really struggled on. So you got this particular Atmos from uh, from Omnisphere, right? Yeah, just playing with the granular thing. Yeah. Have you ever messed around with uh, Gravity by Heaviosity? Uh, you know, I toyed like the idea of buying that. Uh, I just didn't. Do you suggest it? Is it is it any good? I would highly suggest it. It is probably the best like Atmos riser downer impact combination contact lab library I've ever heard in my life. I mean, Adam, you can vouch for this, right? After your serums and fat builder stuff, it's like right next in the list of things that I mean, it's not cheap, which is the one downside, but it's like hundred out of a hundred like top quality stuff it's crazy crazy good give that some more thought <laughs> in that case so yeah because uh, uh it's so, something that i i look at every time I, i'm going on like a vst buying binge uh, i do look at that and i'm like oh i could, I could get that but i just never do i just yeah but I, yeah I'll, I'll have a i'll have another look at that every impact that i ever use ever now is from is from gravity it's just because like it really just like takes the best bits from like the most hardcore cinematic strategies but like put it in a way that like us as artists can use like it's the it's so great yeah i'll, I'll check it out man other than that dude love the song love the ep it's all fantastic man really really love what you're doing since we talked about uh saturation earlier it's certainly not as light on the cpu as the ableton saturator but if you are looking for more like strange distortion types i don't know if you checked out isotope trash 2 there's probably about a hundred different distortion modes, let alone the fact you can then draw in your own wave shaping shapes. But it probably doesn't have the analog vibes that you'd want if you want like proper and analog stuff necessarily, but certainly if you want more flex flexibility to choose your own harmonics and wave shaping, it's it's been my go-to for years. Yeah, because yeah, I do have that actually, um, and I have used it occasionally. Um, I mean, I think I'll need to have like, I don't know, a proper session with it and actually learn it properly, because it seems quite like, uh, I don't know, pretty much endless 
the things you can do with it in that respect. So I found that it's really good for just absolutely smashing things, like brutalizing them. That's that's what I do it for, just like completely like brutalizing things. And I find that when I do that, it really it flattens out the top end really nicely. Like, and it, if you've got any stereo information in your source material, it really brings it out because I don't, don't know what it's doing, but not, not, it's distorting. But yeah, it is really nice. But I, I, it's underused by me. I don't use it a lot at all. It's just because uh, yeah, you know, I forget to actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's definitely. Definitely a good one, man. Um, yeah. Decapitate is another good one as well, actually. Yeah. Sound toys. Sound toys, yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd be meant to spend more time with that. Did you have a good time on the show? Yeah, 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 man. <laughs> Fully. Hey, Daw Nation, hope you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Daw with Culprit breaking down his song, Subsonics. If you did, please like, comment, subscribe, repost, follow, whatever is appropriate on the particular platform that you're listening on, like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Deezer, YouTube. Doesn't matter. Wherever you're at, it just helps us know that what we're doing is moving in the direction that you need us to. Also, I did just want to bring up the Patreon one more time. If you are interested in keeping these episodes free forever, please check out the Patreon. Plus, if you go with the $5 a month, tier you're able to come into the in the da and behind the da patron only discord community where we do the live streams of these interviews while they're happening so that you can ask your own questions and every week we select the lucky winner to be able to come and join the call with us so that they can meet the artists for example in this episode asana was the lucky winner so if you're interested in that please check out the patreon it helps us it helps you but now that this episode is over and i'd highly encourage you to check out the last episode of behind the da that episode was with Christina Soto. That was so good. That was amazing. The knowledge, the wisdom that came from it, I would highly encourage you to check that out. But Don Nation, make sure to come back here on Friday at 8 a.m. Mountain Daylight Time. We're going to be releasing a new Behind the Die episode with Note Taker. That's really good. There's so much information and knowledge that's going to be in that episode. Knowledge bombs, as we like to call them. So please come on back when that happens. But Don Nation, have a fantastic day, and we'll talk to you soon.